Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, Navid Jamali. And you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. If you're a fan of the unexplained, of real-life mysteries, of the occasional cryptid, or even of a good Netflix documentary, perhaps the name D.B. Cooper is familiar. And that's with good reason. The D.B. Cooper story has been elevated past the point of real-life oddity to folkloric legend. It's a story that could certainly not happen in 2022. An anonymous man using a pseudonym walks through an airport uninterrogated, gets on a plane, doesn't even take his shoes off, hijacks that plane. uh, And by the way, he's smoking cigarettes the whole time he does this and asks for $200,000 in ransom money. And then once he gets that money, he disappears by lowering the steps and jumping out of that plane somewhere over the Pacific Northwest never to be seen again. The post-9-11 age and the internet age wouldn't allow it to happen again. My goodness, can you imagine 
not being able to identify this man today. But that is exactly what has allowed D.B. Cooper to enjoy a new level of infamy. And it has potentially brought us tantalizingly close to unraveling the mystery more than 50 years. Can you believe that? 50 years after the fact. Mark Zaid is an internationally recognized national security lawyer. And we'll certainly have him back to discuss work that he's done in that space. But today he joins us in his capacity as a D.B. Cooper enthusiast and pro bono investigator. You might have seen him recently on the Netflix documentary series, D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? As he told us, though, even that wasn't the whole story. Mark, it is a pleasure to have you, my friend. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Thanks. So let's talk about D.B. Cooper. And before we get into it, you know, there seems to be this D.B. Cooper, like, I don't know if it's a curse. I don't know if it's some sort of like intense draw, but the story itself, before we get into, you know, the latest developments and your involvement, but the story itself seems to really draw people in. And, you know, for someone who's worked on this, I I just want to ask you as a starting question, what is it about the D.B. Cooper case that fascinates you? Well, so I was four years old when it happened. I don't remember it in, in real time, but it is fascinating to watch the news broadcasts and interviews from back at the time and in the years since, say like a decade afterwards, of how much in the era of the Vietnam War and anti-government protests and you know all sorts of things along those lines of sticking it to the man and the level of folklore hero that this individual became. It it is very much a a testament to what American culture and society was and the fascinating or fascination with the fact of this individual got away with it, presumably, you know, assuming he didn't die in the course of of jumping out, but they obviously never found anything uh, body-wise. But it's floor hero to so many people and, you know, has been adopted by Hollywood and uh, I dare say almost has like a cult like fascination surrounding whoever this person was. I mean, one of the things to that point <laughs> is that DB was not even the name that he used. Right. It was a, it was a misprint by the yes. media early on and it somehow became DB Cooper and that stuck. And there's this legend that was born of DB Cooper, you know, and I think that it fascinates the public, but it clearly has a hold on people who get involved in the case, you know, you know, these sort of uh, amateur sleuths. And, and some of them are, I say amateur, but some of them have inc- such as yourself have incredible pedigrees, you know, for you and for the legend of DB Cooper, um, is it the pull to solve this or is it the legend itself that's so appealing? Yeah. And starting with the name, of course, it, it, the passenger was Dan Cooper and you know, airline travel back in 1971, very different from what we all know about today. I mean, you just walked into the airport, put cash down on the counter and bought a one way ticket and went wherever and nobody cared. So there was nothing unusual about anything surrounding it. But some reporter and I'm not sure if they ever identified probably did who somebody for some reason misheard and wrote D.B. Cooper. Now, that sounds even sexier than, of course, just Dan Cooper. Of course, uh, it's just the name. But that gave it a more air of mystique and mystery surrounding it. I certainly knew of the case without a doubt. And my 
history growing up and then as becoming a lawyer 30 years ago has always been about solving cases. And I, I have been involved with the Lincoln assassination, Kennedy assassination, Princess Diana's death, UFOs, Bermuda Triangle. I mean, you name it. I just find them fascinating. And I particularly like to try and solve them or at least help contribute to it. So when I was asked to come into this case as part of the cold case team a decade ago, uh, I jumped at it. Now, the guy who brought me in, Tom Colbert, who is very much as I am in the new Netflix documentary, uh, I had known Tom since around 1994, almost 20 years, because uh, as a reporter, he reached out to me when I was handling a case trying to exhume the remains, alleged remains of John Wilkes Booth, uh, who's buried up in Baltimore. And I represented the descendants of John Wilkes Booth. And we were trying to show uh, whether or not that was actually Booth in the grave. And he loved the story and worked with me and we became friends. So it was a very natural progression to then be asked to be the lawyer on this cold case team uh, of and he he had this new piece of evidence, which we can go into. Yeah, and it's you're right. It seems like it's almost like this. You know, it is a very small circle, and and you know, you you run into people in that small circle. And I do want to talk about this new evidence, but obviously, Mark, you are a national security lawyer, and I know you're talking about you have a wide range of cases you've been involved in. But you know, I think it's safe to say your bread and butters is on the national security side, and you know, I think one of the fascinating things about this is your ability to, to really kind of get the FBI to give their, was it their the totality of the D.B. Cooper file? I think you got them to turn over. I mean, they basically, it sounds like they washed, I mean, they closed the case, they washed their hands of it. So I want to ask what the National Security Department and how that happened. But I'm also curious, why do you think the FBI basically said, like, we're, we're kind of done with this and, you know, kind of washed their hands and, and, walked away from it. Why do you think they closed the case? Is there people read into that or, or is it just, it was time. It was, you know, it's unlikely that anyone, any suspects are still, you know, quite a few maybe may still have passed on. Why do you think, what was behind that? So one of the reasons I was also brought in was the work that I do within the national security realm and with the FBI all the time. So I have an ability and, and reach inside these agencies to at least get their attention. And I was in communication with the FBI at the earliest stages of the creation of the cold case team, trying to share our information with them, trying to help them solve the case to see if they didn't have the information that we did. And there were a number of times that I interacted with them. And I, I can discuss uh, some of them for sure, uh, and explain. Um, but for the most part, they were uh, dismissive, uh, as they have always been. And when we did the History Channel documentary in 2016, which ended up becoming of fundamental importance to where we are now six years later, uh, they, the FBI, announced after they backstabbed us, which we should definitely talk about because it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating, that they administratively closed their case. 
um, they had had a case agent continuously assigned different people, of course, over the years, but a case agent out of the Seattle, Washington field office as the lead case agent assigned to the D.B. Cooper case. And for the most part, those folks were entertaining, you know, garbage coming in. Oh, I think my uncle's D.B. Cooper. Oh, they told me this. Oh, I looked at a photo from that. It looked like him. Oh, he told me jokingly while he was plastered on whiskey one night, you know, and, and all sorts of just crazy stuff where they're wasting their time. Now, the D.B. Cooper skyjacking was incredibly significant. It wasn't the first hijacking that we had had in our history, uh, but it was the first really successful one where the guy got away completely. And in 1971, the FBI was still very much J. Edgar Hoover's FBI uh, as being dedicated and devoted towards kidnappings, bank robberies, hijacking. We're not we're not quite there yet for terrorism and, you know, espionage and things that dominate the current FBI, although obviously there were still examples of all of that. But this became very much an FBI case. But. No one was hurt. The airline in question now is long since out of business. The insurance company paid the funds. I suppose they, whoever the insurance company was, still could potentially have a claim now. Uh, but the, the FBI moved on. Now, we discovered, I think we knew, but we, we got a hold of for the first time, that a John Doe indictment against D.B. Cooper in, I want to say, 1976. Uh, it was a five-year statute of limitations for the criminal activity that happened, and they didn't know who it was, so they indicted John Doe. And we think, although I can't say we confirmed it, that they have, con at least up until 2016, continually renewed that indictment so that theoretically, and it would have been an untested legal premise, uh, for having a John Doe indictment out in existence for so long that they could have prosecuted. But based on what we learned about this case and Robert Rackstraw, uh, my personal view, personal slash professional view, is uh, the FBI was incredibly embarrassed. They, they had the suspect. They let him go. It's now years later. It's going to be difficult to prosecute. It's a folklore hero. They got far more important things to deal with right now, and they don't want to be bothered with it. So they're, they're just going to close the case administratively and move on. They said the only thing that would cause them to really reopen would be finding a body, finding the parachute, or finding more of the money. And we should talk about it uh, afterwards. Uh, when there was some of the D.B. Cooper money found in 1980, because that is very much what set the cold case team in motion. So the, if those three things didn't happen, they were done. Now, what that enabled to happen was for us to file a Freedom of Information Act request that I filed literally the day I saw the History Channel program for the first time, and the FBI announced they were closing the case, put that in, and then sued them like the next month. Uh, it had been tried before, but it had been considered just like Jimmy Hoffa's case still is from 1975, an open case. And you can't get access to open 
criminal investigative files. But because they closed it, we could. So literally every month, the FBI is obligated to process at least 500 pages and release whatever is non-exempt. And they put it up, they send me a copy on disk, and then they post on their website uh, for everybody to read whatever amount of pages they released that month. Now, they identified somewhere in the range of 70, 80,000 responsive pages. So it is literally going to take 12 years, of which we're through <laughs> about half, to get the complete file. But uh, I'm, I'm not going anywhere, as far as I know. So uh, we'll, we'll be looking at it. And this has been a benefit to everybody who has been investigating this case because these are the raw FBI files. I think that is such an important point. I mean, you know, as a journalist, I can absolutely tell you that one of the challenges is uh, finding out about in active investigations. You know, that just that information is, is very rightfully so very, you know, carefully protected. Um, and the thing about D.B. Cooper that that is so interesting to me is besides the folklore, besides what he, you know, did is sort of the government's response. And you're right. Look, at the end of the day, what was the crime that, you know, he actually committed? It was, two, as you said, $200,000, whether there's a victim or not. I mean, as you said, the airline's defunct, you know, the money's long been paid off and also $200,000. Um, so the FBI's sort of resistance to make these files, you know, public to kind of keep it going when they're really not do anything. Um, it, it, to me, that's always been interesting. And, you know, one of the things that there's actually quite a bit, and I want to, this is, you know, I, I'll, I'll toss it to you here with that tranche of files. That's been slowly that drip, drip, drip. That's been coming out. What are some of the fat? I mean, look, I've looked at enough FOIAs and FBI files and, you know, nine out of 10 times, it's like, you know, <laughs> the agents submitting reimbursement requests for lunch and things like that. But you put that aside, what are some of the gems that have come out of, out of this? So there's been a lot of information that we've actually gotten. And from what I understand from researchers, it's been incredibly helpful for them to give them leads. At first we were trying to pursue Rackstraw's FBI subfile of the main file, meaning each suspect would have their own subfile. Rackstraw was still alive at that point. We filed the lawsuit in 2016. He actually objected to the release of his files. Uh, he filed a rambling screed to the court that actually accused me of murdering him, of which he got better, sort of shades of Monty Python's in search of the, the Holy Grail, where he got turned into a newt, but he got better. Uh, and somehow Rackstraw survived uh, after I killed him. Uh, and the judge ruled that his privacy outweighed the public interest. Uh, but and, and pushed the issue to the back of the line because we would have eventually uh, been able to deal with it. Uh, unfortunately for Robert Rackstraw, he passed away. In 2019, so I went back to the bureau and said, now I want his subfile. And we got about something like 80 pages of information. Now, no smoking gun within those pages. A lot of really interesting information to see why the FBI focused on Rackstraw, certain things that he told them back in the 70s, what other people told the FBI about Rackstraw's comments and his capabilities and that he could have pulled this off uh, and tying this back to 
the History Channel documentary in 2016, what we learned from that is they had hired uh, an, a former senior FBI official to sort of be the liaison between our team and the FBI. And that individual got access, Fuentes got access to the FBI files per the FBI. And though this was never revealed on camera, uh, either in the History Channel documentary or in the Netflix documentary, although I know I told it to them, was that we were told privately that the reason why the FBI turned away from Robert Rackstraw was, and it says this in the files, that he was eliminated as a suspect. The reason why he was eliminated as a suspect was that he had an alibi that the FBI could not break. And so they moved on. Well, we as the cold case team found out that Rackstraw actually didn't have an alibi. He had several alibis, but not just meaning that, oh, here, I was in this location on this date and four alibi witnesses can back it up. No, he had multiple different alibis, which the FBI was not aware of uh, at any time in, that we can tell in the course of their investigation, meaning we identified multiple people who said Rackstraw told them a completely different story that alibied him, which means none of his alibis are valid. It undermines all of them, right? If he says he's in New York, St. Louis, uh, Detroit, and Acapulco through four different alibis, and it means there's no credibility to any one of them on the same day. So that was a key thing that we were able to identify. Uh, we also identified letters that no one knew about before that supposedly originated from whoever was D.B. Cooper. Now, back at the time, somebody kept sending letters into different newspapers, and I can't remember if it went to the FBI directly, but often to newspapers, and the newspapers would turn these over to the FBI. And it, I'm sure some of these were fake, and there's people, you know, trying to get a little bit of fame and have some fun. But some of the letters were identified as coming from whoever D.B. Cooper, Dan Cooper was. Uh, there was information in them that only a small number of people, to include the Skyjacker, would know. Now, some of the newspapers printed these letters contemporaneously. What we learned in the files was that there had been other letters that the FBI had held back uh, and didn't notify anyone publicly. And we had a member of the cold case team, this is in the Netflix documentary, go through these letters and identify what he believes were codes that tied to Rackstraw's Vietnam days uh, and appeared to reveal that D.B. Cooper was Robert Rackstraw. Now, appropriately, the Netflix documentary had someone uh, state to the contrary that he thought these codes were too uh, easily manipulatable, uh, and that it doesn't necessarily mean it's almost a confirmation bias, uh, and that it could mean something else. But I'll tell you, that's not my forte. That I, I said actually during the time we learned about these before anybody knew that you know we need multiple code people to look at this and ascertain whether or not this is true because um, it's outside of my expertise. But uh, that's at least out there that came from the FOIA lawsuit uh, and a whole host of other leads 
for people to look at. Uh, I think a, a number of them are are discussed in the Netflix documentary, but uh, you know, I'm sure there's going to be more to come since we're only about halfway through the FBI's files. You know, and I think watching the Netflix series, uh, Rackshaw himself, I mean, clearly he was someone the FBI was looking at at some point, whether they ruled him out as a suspect eventually or not. I mean, Rackshaw as a, as a person himself is a, is a fascinating character. Here's a man who uh, was, a, I believe, a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and he had lied about his pedigree and, and was eventually drawn down and had, you know, uh, admittedly had a tremendous amount of bitterness for being for the military. And so the, if I understand correctly, the motive, if he was indeed, is indeed D.B. Cooper, was that part of this was getting back at the military, right? So this, this uh, skyjacking happened shortly, either after or right, bef- right before he was officially, you know, drummed out of the army. Um, and he was later, just uh, unbelievably, <laughs> that's not where uh, Rackshaw's, you know, interesting history, like, ends. He was, um, he was working in Iran, I think up to the, the fall of the Shah and was arrested for and charged with killing his stepfather. So this guy himself is, you know, he's not a choir boy, right? So no. there, there's clearly a really interesting thing. And one of the things the Netflix documentary kind of pushed out is I think early on there was this character uh, Briggs and, and really uh, your team really focused on Rackshaw and Listen, from a, from a background, from what we know, like those, what I just said, Mark, are undisputable uh, facts about Rackshaw himself. Do you think personally that his backer, we, I, I forget about what is, you know, these contradictory alibis, but do you think, and, uh, you know, as a, as a personality and sort of his just background, does it lend to him potentially being D.B. Cooper? It, he's a fa- he was a fascinating guy, as you just articulated. And, and there's a storyline that could be developed just based on him. And, he, and he's not, he's not a folk hero. Uh, he's not a, he was not a good guy. Uh, he's just a fascinating guy, but he was not a good person uh, in that sense. He might've been as he's, as one can see him in the last few years of his life. And he's in his seventies uh, as sort of like this, you know, gentle, uh, amiable, friendly type of, guy and kind of grandfatherly guy. But, you know, as you said, he was prosecuted for murdering his stepfather back in the 70s. And he was involved with a whole bunch of stuff. His background pedigree lends to this case. If anybody could have pulled it off, he could have skilled wise. And he has quoted himself. He told the FBI at times that, you know, he, he could have been the one who did it. And he told lots of people at the time how bitter he was against the army when he was drummed out because he lied about his background. Uh, and there's all sorts of connections to uh, sort of intelligence operations. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm, I've always been skeptical of them only because I, I just haven't seen the proof yet. I, I wouldn't rule it out at all. Can and I, I represent... You- I to stop you. And I know this is because I do want to ask, you this. as you said, this is this is your world, national security. And one of the things that I thought was a little weak in some of the claims here is exactly what you're saying. There's no doubt in my mind that Rackstraw was, you know, there's Air America. And, you know, you obviously you had things. He was in Iran. Right. Yes. It, it clearly, it's it very likely. And, and in fact, it's very plaw and it's very plausible that he was working for, you know, some subsidiary of the Central Intelligence Agency of the CIA. But there's this claim that perhaps the CIA, knowing that he had worked for them, and again, 
he'd worked for them, but you know, he was a pilot, right? Like I, I can't imagine there's, there's I'm sure there's quite a few former pilots who've worked for the CIA in that capacity, but there's this claim that the CIA may have intervened in the FBI investigation to protect Philip Rackstraw because they were afraid that their name would be dragged into this. Do, do you feel that that is a, what do you think, what do you say to that? Yeah, I'm not a fan of that theory, not because it might not be true, but because it's just a theory. I like to deal with facts and evidence. Right. And I, I thought the tying in of Rackstraw to the CIA is still too tenuous and vague to really push it uh, up to this point. Uh, and I mean, I've dealt with many fakes over the years. It is really easy, as I'm sure you know, for sure, given your own background. Um, and nowadays, for someone to create a, a posture that they were former intelligence, it's not difficult, quite frankly, to create a, right. a mask of making it look like you were. Uh, I, I do think I found his time in Iran to be incredibly suspicious, given the time that it was, given his background, uh, both from a skill standpoint, but also criminal standpoint, uh, that somehow he would end up over there in the days before the Shah and then essentially get tricked to come back by the FBI so the FBI can arrest him. So I, I'm not ruling anything out, but. But I was not, frankly, comfortable in, in pushing that yet. I, I actually I did not like how Netflix used the person in the shadows. I think I actually know who the person is from our team. But I, I thought that actually undermined the credibility of the program uh, because what the who is this person? How is this person is not credible to the public right. in putting out this type of premise about spies and secrecy and there's no evidence. And I wanted, I want this to focus on evidence. And, and, you know, look again, if we stick with facts, right, just undisputed facts, Radshaw, Rackshaw, uh, if we stick with undisputed facts, Rackshaw's bio, again, like <laughs> it is just, it fits what you would think T.B. Cooper was. I mean, the man besides, you know, being arrested and accused of killing his stepfather, I think at one point he was, he was charged with like stealing airplanes and, and trying to fake his own death. And I mean, yeah. you just go with those things. You don't necessarily need to introduce this other, you know, uh, wouldn't it have made sense that a character like Rackshaw would have showed up in sort of conflict zones where the CIA was operating? Absolutely. Does that sort of mean that there's, you know, again, just from a cold objective standpoint, that doesn't mean that the CIA is going to care if you get arrested back in the States, right? There, you know. No, and, and look, I mean, I've had, I've had CIA clients get arrested and sure. prosecuted and, you know, there's the system allows for that. And, and it, the world doesn't end. The CIA's world doesn't end. Uh, you know, is it, is it possible the CIA intervened? Ah, sure. Anything is possible. You know, I'm watch. I just watched the old man on Hulu slash Netflix. Right. And it's all about stuff like that. And it started to lose me because I know, at least from my experiences, that is it plausible? Yes. Is this likely what happens? Uh, you know, even the CIA is beset by bureaucracy yeah. and rules and regulations. <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> the, pa the paperwork alone, Mark, the paperwork alone is that, a, 
is a pretty good you know blocker for that. You know, for the CIA to go over to the FBI and the Department of Justice and say, drop this, that's some pretty serious stuff. Yeah, I, and I, I can't uh, see. You know, if, if it was something historic, now maybe in the 70s, I could see it if it was because of with Iran, with Iran and everything. But and, and who knows when this happened. But if you look at it, you know, decades later, is the CIA going to care uh, that its activities in Iran in the 70s is out? No, I really don't think so. Yeah. Uh, and now I think it's more likely the FBI wants to avoid prosecution because it's going to be embarrassed and it's going to be a difficult case for the Justice Department to make. 50 plus years later, you don't right. typically see other than having DNA, as is more prevalent nowadays. And that's that's a gap in this case, although there is the possibility of, of we'll find it. DNA, yeah. um, because, uh, you know, the letters that I mentioned have DNA on them. The tie, which apparently has gone some aspects of it that has DNA. And there have been there were cigarettes. And I think we learned this as a result of the files. And they lost them. They they, They they, lost them. ah, I mean, so you're right. I think that to me, I'm a I'm a realist, as I'm sure you are. And I think it's far more plausible that the FBI is trying to, you know, really, I don't want to say cover up, but, you know, perhaps this is an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment because there was missteps and they potentially let someone slip through their fingers with one of the most highest, highest profile cases they ever, you know, they've ever involved in. So to me, that seems far more believable than the CIA walking in. Is that kind of where you are with this as well? Yeah, I, 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 look, I believe in Occam's razor, right? The simplest explanation is usually the best. Right. And, and so I, I don't want to go down the gravy train and the rabbit hole uh, un- unless I need to. Doesn't mean we eliminate it. I'm not eliminating that the CIA has a role in this. I'm not eliminating that Rackstraw has connections to the CIA. Uh, but I I have not yet seen any proof of it other than conjecture. Uh, and I can plausibly come up with explanations just as easily as I can come up with theories. And I don't want to deal with either. I, w- I want to deal with facts. So it, keeping that that thought in mind, you know, another six, seven years before we get all of the FBI files. Do you think, Mark, at this point, it is, I know you can never say it's not possible, but do you think it's likely that another suspect with as many of the boxes checked as Rackshaw will will show up as these files become public? I doubt it as far as the files, something new that someone wouldn't have known about. And, and this is what real the Netflix documentary, some of the folks, the other D.B. Cooperites was really annoying me as they talked generically. And maybe they talked more specifically on camera, but that didn't make it into the final product. So I'll I'll, I'll give it that that's a, a possibility. And they're, they're as frustrated as I am because I know certain things that I said, which I think would have been a game changer for the audience were cut for whatever reason from the program. And maybe the same happened to them. But all I saw in the program was people saying, well, I don't think it's D.B. Cooper. I mean, I, you know, I don't think Rackstraw was D.B. Cooper. I've been working this case for years. And Tom Colbert uh, and his cold case team are just fixated on Rackstraw and confirmation bias. What I never heard was, why don't you think it's Rackstraw? What, what proof do you have to the contrary? And I, 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 at least this part was in there where I said, I've never seen anyone reasonably give me an alternative explanation to the evidence that the circumstantial evidence 
that we brought forth. So when I worked on the Kennedy assassination case, I still do in getting the records released. But when I was working substantively on it, I used to take the old theories from the 60s that had dominated and distracted people and been able to disprove some of them, meaning they were no longer conspiratorial because they were off the table. That is of value when you have a case like Excuse me, hang on a <coughs> That is of value when you have a case like this. Disproving theories is sometimes as important as proving theories. Just saying, oh, I don't, I don't believe that theory. That's not evidence. That's an opinion. So I don't think, I'm sorry, I don't think the files will reveal new people. I think the files will help narrow certain things down. And the files, quite frankly, may actually help open up new theories, not in the sense of a new suspect, but coupled with, you know, information that some of us in the field have, on the research field have, that the FBI just didn't have access to at the time. And as I always believe, I think science can answer many of history's greatest mysteries. And if we can just get access to some of the DNA from some of the artifacts from the skyjacking and run it against uh, Rackstraw's family. And you know what? If that showed that it wasn't Rackstraw and everything we determined that was circumstantial just happened to be in line, I, I can easily say, OK, great, we were wrong and we'll step away or I'll step away. But until I see that, I, I don't see any reason why not to continue to look at Rackstraw as the primary suspect. And, and that is, I mean, it's a, it's a a very good point. I mean, look, the DNA part is, is as you said, is perhaps probably the best way to rule in or out uh, Ragshaw. What is, what is stopping that from happening? What's the legal blocker right now? I don't think there's any legal block. I think it's a, an FBI hesitancy or non-interest. You know, we gave some of this is in the program, not all the details in the Netflix program. We gave the FBI material that was discovered in the woods, in the pathway of the plane that maybe could have been from a parachute. I don't know. Uh, You know, some of that was they showed folks in the woods, Tom. Colbert in the woods and finding something. What they didn't show was the role that I played in making sure that that material got to the FBI. And again, you know, as I said earlier, one of the only, I think, I think hopefully it was, that was part of the tape. I'm not sure. But one of the things I said was that, you know, the FBI said they would only reopen the case if they got parts of the parachute. So, okay, FBI, here we go. We got you parts of the parachute, maybe. So go run a test. Find out what this material is. What does it date to? I mean, this is easy FBI laboratory stuff, forensic laboratory so, stuff. So why not? I mean, do. why not? Because, you know, like I said, it could either it could potentially close the case. Why won't they do it? What's the what's what do you think the reason is for that? I mean, I, I, I come down to the bottom line of mo- most of the most mysteries and conspiracies have to do with CYA and covering yeah. up personal failings. And, and I think that this is an open sore for the FBI that, you know, much like the Canadian Mounties and J. Edgar Hoover, they didn't get their man. And not only didn't they get the man, they let the man slip through their fingers. They had Rackstraw. 
uh, and he got through. And so it would be highly embarrassing. I mean, how many cases, frankly, do you look at in the FBI's history where they failed to identify the person? I mean, look, Ted Kaczynski and right as the Unabomber took decades to get him, but they got him. And, you know, they went to extraordinary lengths and open it up to the public to, you know, get his brother to reveal that. Wow, that sounds like my brother with this manifesto. Or Whitey uh, Bulger. I mean, that's <laughs> Whitey Bulger. You know, maybe Jimmy Hoffa could still be sure. right. Something as an open case that happened four years after the D.B. Cooper skyjacking. Uh, but I, I think it's just one of embarrassment I, now. And I'll tell you, and I know this was when I when I stopped the recording by accident. So it's not on there. You know, one of the things in the uh, this was in both the History Channel and the Netflix documentary. And this is what really annoys me greatly about the Netflix program, because I addressed this on camera. It didn't make it into the broadcast in the History Channel program. They brought out the primary flight attendant who interacted with Dan Cooper throughout the skyjacking. She's the one who received the note that he had a bomb. She was the liaison between him and the flight crew, the cockpit, and radio communications back. And she had not spoken for decades. And that we were totally surprised. I had, in fact, I didn't even know about this until the program aired, uh, that, that they, through the FBI, arranged for her to come and meet with our team and show her a photo array that included a contemporaneous 1971 photo of Robert Rackstraw. And she could not pick out Robert Rackstraw as the hijacker. And that sealed us. That that just killed us for that documentary, that she couldn't do it. What they didn't say, and even though one of the passengers did pick him out as the hijacker, uh, not knowing they were being hijacked at the time, but having seen him on the plane, what the Netflix documentary didn't say, and the H and the doc, the History Channel as well. But I said this on camera, but it didn't make it. Was that her testimony, her credibility, is reliability is virtually nil, because she had the flight attendant had a mental health breakdown, where she was institutionalized for years, and w- there was a book that came out in the 1980s written by a former. D.B. Cooper, FBI case agent, who says that this flight attendant's memory is gone, wiped. She can't remember a thing. Jeez. So what value was it for the FBI to bring her out on camera knowing that she would never be able to identify Robert Rackstraw as the skyjacker? The value is she would not be able to identify Robert Rackstra as a skyjacker. And until someone can give me a much more plausible explanation uh, in light of her background and what we think is the motive of the FBI to kill this case, that that's what I'm going to believe. And and I, I, I really wish that had been in the program, because to me, that is some of the most powerful uh, evidence against what is a damning undermining of the Rackstraw theory otherwise. It, it makes total sense to me. And, you know, I think, the, yeah, it, I think it doesn't, does not surprise me to learn that the FBI is motivated primarily in terms of, you know, like you said, CYA. You know, the last question for you, Mark, about this, because I think this is, when I heard this, I 
super fascinating. You know, if before Rockstraw passed, if he had admitted that he was DB Cooper, um, I know that there were some discussions about, you know, what is at that time, what is potential criminal, you know, exposure would be, and perhaps even defending him. I thought that was a fascinating thing. I know it's a discussion you and I had, but tell, tell us a little bit about that. Would you have, would you, if Rackshaw had come out and said I was DB Cooper and you've just been part of the team that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that it's identified him, would you then put on your defense attorney hat and, and defend him? Yeah. So I was the one handling all those behind the scenes conversations, which again is in neither of the documentaries. I was in touch with Rackstraw's former criminal defense lawyer from when he was prosecuted for murder back in the 70s. Uh, the, the guy is actually a, a, a very well-respected civil rights attorney uh, or in, this, in the criminal side of, of dealing with like anti-war protests or stuff like that. I don't know if he's still alive today. It's a few years later. Um, and he obviously been in his, maybe his 80s or so. But uh, I was in touch with him and we had some really interesting back and forths. Uh, and I, I remember he, him writing me at one point saying, yeah, yeah, Bob has told me he was D.B. Cooper at, some, at one point. But he used to always tell me everything and he always would joke about it uh, and everything. And Robert Rackstraw, he used to leave me voicemails. I wish I could find because I know I had saved them at one point. I wish I could find them. But he used to leave me voicemails joking around with me. Uh, about everything. I mean, it was a game to him. He loved it. And he would go back and forth, just like you see in the Netflix documentary about, yeah, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Uh, and then he'd say, no, I'm not. But then he'd say, well, you know, maybe I was. And and we were, I guess you could say, trying to buy his story in the sense of we we told him, I told him, or or his lawyer, that, you know, look, this story is worth a lot of money and you'll make a lot of money if you come forward and say that you're D.B. Cooper. Obviously, we only want you to say you're D.B. Cooper if you're D.B. Cooper. Uh, we don't want anything false right. uh, at any point in time. And, uh, you know, I was doing legal analysis about, you know, what could you likely face, if anything? And, you know, looking into the indictment that might still exist and could that indictment st still be valid, uh, you know, 45 years later? Uh, and saying, look, you know, you are in your 70s now. Let's say you are, let's say you admit to it and you are prosecuted. You know, your health is, eh, uh, you know, you've had some setbacks. I bet you we can negotiate something for you. I'm willing to work. I, me, Mark Zaid, I'm willing to work with talking to the U.S. Attorney's Office and dealing with the FBI uh, of something that would be, you know, minimal jail time in, you know, some federal penitentiary, that's summer camp or home arrest or, you know, whatever it could be. I mean, they're not going to send you to Leavenworth for this crime all these years later. Uh, it would have to be mostly based on your ability or your willingness to acknowledge your D.B. Cooper. Now, let's say you do that and let's say you set you agree to reimburse whatever the successor insurance company is of the two hundred thousand dollars. Could you imagine if he was still alive, how much the film rights to his story would be, how much he could make Crazy. on the speaking circuit, you know, for for things? Oh, my, he would be a multi, multi-millionaire. And we were trying to persuade him that that was worth it for him to do if, in fact, it were true. But, 
you know, he would just goof around and kid around with us and, and never, never really be completely serious. So it just never happened. Boy, would I love to hear those, uh, those voicemails. That's, I got to look like, around my computer and see if I can find them. That is, that is, I mean, you know, look, it, it just, again, as we started this conversation, it just goes towards the legend of DB Cooper. Like it's just this, you know, uh, larger than life. And, and frankly, Rackshaw sounds larger than life. Even the factual things that we know about him, he just, as you said, he wasn't a good man. He wasn't, you know, a complicated man for sure. You know, charged with some pretty bad things. But man, what a fascinating life. And it, it sort of sort of feels like, you know, this thing that could never happen today because, you know, it's, it's, it, can you imagine, uh, you know, you lose a bag. They can probably find your picture, you know, um, in an airport now. I mean, they're just the, the, the most minute things. They, everything is recorded. And to have someone hop on a plane, skyjack it, and abscond, you know, with $200,000 by parachuting out of the back steps of a 727, um, it's it's a legend, you know, and I'll I'll leave you with this, Mark. I had a, a professor at Naval War College who, as a as a young boy, um, lived close to SeaTac, and he remembers the 727 that he said it was like just sitting on the runway with its engines running, and he couldn't understand why it wasn't taking off. And he later learned that that was in fact the uh, the air airplane that Cooper had hijacked. So this legend still still lives, and I guess you know uh, it would seem that yes or no, it seems at this point. You know, the evidence certainly supports, whether it's circumstantial or not, that that Rackshaw was D.B. Cooper. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, on the legend, the folklore of it, I'll tell you a quick funny story that was sure. that recently uh, happened. You know, look, post 9-11, any comments at the airport or on a plane about a hijacking is unbelievably sensitive. Right. You can get arrested and kicked off a plane for just joking about something like that, right? You, any comments about a bomb or, or you know, any, any strange behavior, right? And understandably so for, sure. you know, any, all those of us who lived through 9-11. But a friend of mine gave me a D.B. Cooper t-shirt when they learned uh, that I was involved with this case. And it's just, it's just like someone jumping out of an airplane with a parachute on and says like D.B. Cooper fan club or something like that. I wore it recently like literally a few weeks ago on a flight and I get on the plane and one of the flight attendants who probably I'm pretty sure wasn't alive at the time of the DB Cooper skyjacking saw my shirt and commented and started laughing. She's like, that's such a great shirt. Uh, And I'm just thinking really the flight attendant is praising (laughs) the successful skyjacking t-shirt. I mean, that's how much this guy has become a folklore hero that even the flight crew is like, oh, how awesome is that? You're like, well, I, I'm not quite sure how awesome it was, but I thought that was pretty funny that the flight attendant was joking about it. What he did was, you know, for, what the legend has at this point <laughs> far um, usurped the actual crime, right? I mean, who he is as a legend and what it, I think represents to most people is you know is what they focus on not the actual criminal activity which candidly again it's it was just a feat it's just something that i think a lot of people especially today kind of look back and say can we can't imagine something like that ever happen you can't can't imagine that someone would commit a crime like this and in, in, you know literally in broad daylight right in in on a airplane with people around and you know people, hundreds of people saw him and you couldn't even identify him it just i think to most people that very simple concept boggles the mind and it's true it just 
we live in a different world than it was in, you know, 1971. Yeah. The legend will continue, but maybe the FBI files will change something in the future or some DNA or something will be found. One of the biggest tantalizing clues that came out of the D.B. Cooper investigation was this money that was recovered. What? First of all, it was recovered in the 80s, like almost a decade or so, at least after Cooper jumped from the plane. Um, the fact that it was recovered and, and, you know, they were able to identify what what can we make of that, Mark? So to me, that aspect is such a key and crucial component of the Rackstraw case. This is what started the cold case team. This is what brought Tom Colbert to create this cold case team that I got brought into, because as is talked about in the Netflix documentary, the original sort of tip was this guy Briggs uh, saying that, pointing out to this guy who was then on, who was identified on camera here, that, oh, hey, you see this hippie couple in the corner, you know, I'm D.B. Cooper and they're going to find some of my money in the next few days. And then the money is found by their seven, eight-year-old son in 1980 on the shores of, uh, I think it was the Columbia, Columbus River, whichever river it was. Um, and it was D.B. Cooper money because it's all obviously the serial numbers were recorded and, and you can buy them. They're up for sale every once in a while. One of my former auction house clients, Heritage Auction in Dallas, Texas, uh, auctioned off a whole bunch of the bills. Uh, I need to buy one. I kept getting outbid. Eventually, I'll get one. Um, but it's fascinating. And But what wasn't discussed, unfortunately, in the documentary was how unbelievable especially scientifically, this find was. Now, for one thing, it was fascinating that it was pre-identified, of course. that That's the first clue. Pre-identified before it happened, hey, that hippie couple are going to find my money uh, in the next few days, and then it happens. But it was found still wrapped in rubber bands. And the reality is that, you know, hey, people, anyone listening to this podcast, go to your drawer and find a rubber band that's been in there for a few years at the back that you forgot about. And you tell me if that rubber band is still surrounding the paper or whatever else, the pens that it's holding. Uh, because in my experience, you touch that rubber band and the thing breaks and crumbles and disintegrates into pieces because rubber bands aren't going to survive. And this is in a drawer in a box. This is not submerged under sand in the river for nine years. Plus, that part of the river had been dredged uh, multiple times to expand it. That beach where they were playing and doing a campfire didn't exist nine years earlier. That sand, or if the beach existed, that sand did not exist in that spot. So there's no way that that money was anything but planted sometime before they immediately found it. And the question is, why and who did it? And that Mark, you gotta, Mark, you, gotta, you, gotta, you must have a theory on that. You got to give it to us. <clears throat> yeah, we've been trying to think about it. Uh, it's we figured it was to just throw people off track. And this is right. I, I go back to the the FX series, The Old Man, and I don't want to give anybody uh, you know, anything that destroys the, the storyline. Uh, but, you know, part of what is in many television shows and movies is that there are there are things happening 
that to everybody around them, they don't understand why decisions are being made because, you know, one or more people have some secret from the past or some concern that they have that something's going to reveal them. So they start taking steps in order to protect the past. And it might not make sense to people around it. So the thought was that something spooked the guys that were involved with the hijacking because it was believed our working theory is that Rackstraw had help, right? He right. did the skyjacking. He landed. He got picked up by somebody uh, as part of a team. There's evidence circumstantial of that. Uh, and that, you know, one or more people knew about the skyjacking and dispersed the money. So something apparently spooked them nine years later, maybe was part and parcel to the FBI re new investigation, not new, but reinvestigation and focusing on Rackstraw, that they wanted to make it appear as if D.B. Cooper had drowned in the river or the money, you know, he's somewhere stuck hanging as a skeleton up in a tree and the money fell into the river, floated downstream, gets caught under the sand and the little boy finds it with his dog or whatever as they're doing a campfire. Um, you know, and, and if that's the case, it kind of worked. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you look at it, with Occam's razor, or you look at it more importantly, scientifically, just absolutely fundamentally, factually impossible. Right. Uh, which to me opens up new doors that I don't understand uh, have not been explored. Now, I do not recall from the records that have been released so far by the FBI, uh, I, ha I haven't seen, but I haven't seen more importantly, anybody bring my attention to uh, any of the discussion about the finding of the money. So I think that's still within the weld withheld files of mm. the FBI. And that will be fascinating to see. Indeed. I mean, that, yeah, there's a lot there and potentially people who are still alive. So, um, yeah, well, the, the couple right. and the son are still alive. Uh, he has never given any subsequent, I know he's, I know there was interviews at the time, but no one has talked to him since I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, but nobody thinks that they're part of anything. Uh, you know, it, it, it was somewhat of a setup, but not that they're part of the D.B. Cooper uh, action and they may not have known anything about it. But, you know, hey, you know, who do, why, why did they go to that beach? Who told them to go there? Who, who told the, who told the dad to go tell the son to go dig uh, and, and stuff like there, there's something so more to that story that we have not yet seen. Ain't that well. There's still a lot more to the story that we still haven't seen, I imagine. Uh, Mark Zaid, thank you so much, sir, for joining us today. Anytime, Naveed. My pleasure. Thanks once again to Mark Zaid for joining us. You can connect with him on Twitter at Mark S. Zaid. That's Z-A-I-D, Esquire, E-S-Q. If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really helps us grow and make sure that we can bring the content that you want to hear. As always, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek. Newsweek.